The sun is blazing and the sky is blue. Umbrellas clothe the beach in every hue. It's called, actually, it's called Pink Dog Rio de Janeiro. That's the name of the poem. The sun is blazing and the sky is blue. Umbrellas clothe the beach in every hue. Naked, you trot across the avenue. Oh, never have I seen a dog so bare. Naked and pink without a single hair. Startle the passers-by. Draw back and stare. They're mortally afraid of rabies. You're not mad. You have a face of you have a case of scabies, but look intelligent. Where are your babies? A nursing mother by those hanging tits in what slum have you hidden them, poor bitch, while you go begging, living by your wits? Have you not heard the joke they tell on all the corners to solve this problem, how they deal with beggars? They throw them, they take and throw them in the, in the um, tidal rivers. Yes, beggars, paralytics, parasites go bobbing in the ebbing sewage nights out in the suburbs where there are no lights. Um, and then she tells the dog to dress up for carnival. Um, uh, let's see. Um, they say that carnivals de degenerating radios, Americans or something, are ruining it completely. They're just talking. Carnival is always wonderful. Um, what sambas will you dance? What can you wear? Tonight, you simply... Where will you get a fantasia, which is a carnival costume? Tonight, you simply can't afford to be an eyesore. Um, but no one will ever see a dog in mascara this time of year. What sambas can you dance? What will you wear? Get up, get up and dance. It's carnival. It's something like that. It's not exactly right. But. Wasn't there an Elizabeth Bishop poem that we read in 10A that was like 11A? A, 11A that was like a parody of some of another poem. Yeah, it he's it's uh, Casabianca. Yes. Yeah, the boy sit on the burning deck trying to recite. The boy sit on the burning <laughs> deck. Yeah. Um, did you do the literary pod podcast on that one? Say that Dave again? Sherman's. Uh, yes. Literary. You read it? Or something? Did I do Carnival in that? No. Um, Casabianca. Casabianca. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's right. I did. I forgot. Um, that plus Hemingway. Yeah. I was. I think it was all in the same thing. It's yeah, the same interview. You just skipped that part. <laughs> <laughs> but it was good. Hemingway's amazing story a day's wait. Which is which one? A day's wait. Oh, it's like two pages long, and it, it's possibly his best story, which is saying a lot. Yeah. Um, do you guys better know than it? A clean, well lighted. It's similar, but yeah, better. Um, do you know it? Do people know it? A day's wait. Um, you should read it. It's an incredibly great story. Um, it's like pretty much as great as a short story can be. Um, I mean, if you leave Kafka out, but. It's pretty much as great as, as what we think of as a short story without um, having the very idea of the category changed as it is by someone like Kafka. Um, but if you just think the category, a short story, a day's wait is about as great as a short story can be. Um, all right, what are we thinking of Johnson? Speaking of bobbing and the ebbing sewage and so on. Very, very different. Yeah, but were you eating while you read that poem? <laughs> <laughs> Shall we talk about the the avoiding shit in the Thames? Was that fun for you guys? That poem. 
or just too too much verbiage, too long, didn't read. <laughs> you liked it? It was okay. It was okay. <laughs> I missed Dunn, but I'll, I'll, I'll become optimistic. All right, well, he misses Dunn, too. Okay, well, <laughs> look, I want to start, actually, I was reading the TLS, uh, Times Literary Supplement. Do people know about the TLS? used to be what more famous three letters in the English language than TLS, but now no more. Um, so the TLS is basically the great um, book review. It's been published since um, like 19, I think it may have been 1904, um, and it's the Times of London Literary Supplement, and it's simply known as the TLS. In fact, Samuel Beckett in Malloy, people know who Beckett is, yes, yes, good. Um, one of the great novelists, you, you may think of him as a playwright, but he's um, great, great, great as he is as a playwright, he's even greater as a novelist, one of the great novelists of the 20th century. And um, in Malloy, Malloy, who is the bum narrator of Malloy, the homeless and desperate uh, narrator of Malloy, um, describes, um, he gets into a, as one naturally would, into a calculation of how many times he farts a day. Um, and um, he realizes that he basically only farts every 15 minutes, so he really shouldn't have brought it up. Uh, he says, I counted, there were 373 farts in one 24-hour period, but then he just works out that actually it's not that many. Um, and he does the arithmetic wrong. Um, it's a lot of farting. Um, but he describes his inoffensiveness because he says at the time it was cold and under his clothes he would wrap himself up in the Times Literary Supplement, um, which was a, um, a newspaper of, of, um, of, um, of impermeable durability, um, which is a way of saying that his farts wouldn't go through the newspaper, um, but also that the Times Literary Supplement was just so thick with um, insensitiveness <laughs> and stupidity and un unawareness of what was actually going on in literature. Um, so it's, it's quite, quite a good insult, uh, the Times Literary Supplement. Um, in recent years, the Times Literary Supplement has enjoyed quoting um, Beckett's or Malloy's insult um, of the Times Literary Supplement. At any rate, um, a few weeks ago, um, um, there was a, an article in the Times Literary Supplement where someone offhandedly said of the Trinity that the Trinity is a description of the fecundity of God. So some guy writing the TLS um, just thinks, okay, if I can just, I'll just say the Trinity is a description of the fecundity of God. It's the kind of thing that you think I should tweet that. Um, and instead he put it in a review of the TLS. So um, someone named Christopher J. Walker wrote a letter um, disagreeing. You've missed so many classes. You are in yeah. such trouble. All right, go ahead. <laughs> Cut this one too. <laughs> I'll leave again. God. Um, sir, maybe Jonathan Benthal holds that the Trinity is a description of the fecundity of God, um, but this image appears nowhere in the Athanasian Creed. So remember, the Athanasian Creed is where the Athanasian ring comes from. The key Western document on the Orthodox view of the Trinity, 
Rather, in that creed, there is much discussion of the terms person and substance, both of which are laden with philosophical complexity. There is also an insistence that each of the persons of the Trinity is fully God in his own right, a demand which is balanced by an equally firm insistence that there are not three gods but one. Thus, Patriarch Timothy's imaginative repost to the Caliph al-Mahdi represents misunderstanding of the postulates of the Holy Triad, the sun's light and heat are attributes of the sun, never suns, in their own right. So um, what Timothy had said in a, in a debate with a Muslim theologian was um, it shouldn't be so hard to think of um, the Trinity. It's like saying the sun is both light and heat. Um, and um, um, Christopher Walker writing this letter is saying, no, it isn't. Light and heat come from the sun, but they're not themselves suns. Whereas the idea of three gods all being God and yet being three, that's um, what he's objecting to. The puzzles set out by the Christian trinity lead one to understand why the notion was rejected by Islam. Augustine said we should not, quote, be deceived by a crude and perverse love of reason, unquote. So he doesn't like Augustine very much either. We shouldn't be deceived by a crude and perverse love of reason. Um, Augustine says that in his essay on the trinity. But rather, be obediently prayerful. Perhaps on this score, Islam was a more rational religion than Christianity. Um, so I'll just finish the letter for you. I have sometimes wondered whether the collapse of the sciences in the West from the end of pagan Rome to their rebirth in the 16th and more especially the 17th century was to some extent due to dogmatic insistence on belief in the fundamental unreasonableness of the Athanasian trinity. So um, here in 2014 is a letter complaining that the Trinity makes no sense um, and that it essentially destroyed um, Western civilization for a millennium um, because people forced themselves to believe in something that made no sense at all. Um, so the reason I read you that letter is because um, in last week's or this week's TLS, the current TLS, um, someone wrote in objecting to that letter, and um, I think it's at least worth hearing a, a modern-day defense of the doctrine of the Trinity. So, sir, Christopher Walker, letters, February 7th, dismisses belief in the Athanasian Trinity, three distinct persons possessing the same nature, as one of, quote, fundamental unreasonableness, unquote. So much for the doctrine which ruled Europe for about 17 centuries and many other parts of the world for long periods as well. The belief is, however, unreasonable only to those who do not distinguish between the two concepts, nature and person, which are far from being the same. So here, here's um, what um, Neville Martin Gwynne is now going to defend the Trinity by distinguishing between the concept of nature and the concept of person. Leaving aside whether or not it is true, this is how the tri-unity doctrine works in abstract theory. So now he's going to tell you how it could be that there's a unity made of three different things. God the Father, the source of everything else, is a person, which for this, pers which for this purpose can be defined as a being that is capable of reason and of loving. Having the nature of God... He is infinite in every perfection, and also eternal. And as part of the very existence of such a being, he inevitably has a thought, 
or a logos, as in um, the book of John. So I quoted for you last time, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word, the word for word in Greek is logos. So, you know, if you ever want to agree with someone enthusiastically in Athens, just say logos. <laughs> Lexi? Um, Lexi, is that Lexi is the verb, right? To speak? Isn't it Lexane? Oh, is it? Maybe it is in modern Greek. Yeah. In, in ancient Greek, lexane, where we get legible and readable, um, also meant to speak. Um, so it could, and there are related words. So it could be that in modern Greek, the. But what? Do you, how do? You, what's logic in modern Greek? I Okay, because logos is where we get the word logic, um, and it's also where you get the logi suffix in lots of words like. Um, geology, um, astrology, um, martyrology, whatever. And what the ology suffix means in all those things is talk about or discourse upon whatever the first part of the word is. So theology is discourse about theos or God. Um, geology is discourse about Gaia or the earth. Um, that is the history of the earth and so on. Um, astrology is discourse about stars. Um, it turned out to be false discourse about stars, but it was discourse about stars. Um, so the beginning of John in Greek is, in the beginning was the logos. And logos is, in its simplest form, it means word, but it also means thought, it means discourse, it means rational thought, it means putting words together. It's one of those words that um, you'll hear in any course I wouldn't be surprised if Kimmelman talked about it in any course that you're introduced to the idea of the logos, you're told there is no single translation into English. But it's the word as something meaningful. Maybe that's a way of saying it. That to say in the beginning was the word means in the beginning was a meaningful utterance where meaning has to imply the idea that there's an idea behind it, not a word that that doesn't stand for an idea, but a word which is itself the embodiment of an idea, which means that it also has to imply that that word is attached and attachable to um, the thought that it is part of the expression of. So, um, so leaving aside whether or not it's true, this is, this is how the triunity doctrine works in abstract theory. God the Father, the source of everything else, is a person which for this purpose can be defined as a being that is capable of reason and of loving. Having the nature of God, he is infinite in every perfection and also eternal, and as part of the very existence of such a being, he inevitably has a thought. That's, um, that's uh, Gwynne's translation of logos is as thought. That is logos, John 1, 1. And again, the idea is... Um, an unthinking being can't be perfect um, because obviously thought is, I mean, it's obvious here, that thought is a higher status. Being a thinking being is to be a more perfect being than to be an unthinking being. A human being is, a higher, is of higher perfection than a rock because a rock can't think um, and, thought, and therefore lacks an attribute um, God wouldn't lack any positive attributes because he's infinite in all things. Therefore, that includes the fact that he thinks, and so God is a thinking being. 
This is actually a debate in the 18th century about God. There's a debate between theists and deists. Um, Jefferson was a deist, and there were a lot of deists, and still are. Einstein was probably a deist. Um, the idea of a deist is that there's a God, but, not, but God isn't a person. Um, God is a principle of the universe. God is something that we all are attracted to as a source of being and of goodness. But the idea of a living God, or a God who thinks, who has um, ideas, who understands us, who we can come to understand, that's the idea of theism rather than deism. Um, so a lot of people will use those terms interchangeably, deist and theist, but they're not interchangeable. Deist means there's a God, but that God could very well be unconscious. That God could simply be nature, which is what Spinoza calls God. Um, God or nature, that is two words for the same thing. And that's what Einstein was. He was a Spinozist. He didn't think there was, well, he may have thought there was a thinking God when he talked about the old one. But what he clearly went on record in believing is, yeah, there's a God, but that God is pantheism. Um, so, but for Gwyn, God would have to think. Um, as part of the very existence of such a being, he inevitably has a thought being no more able not to have this thought than we are able not to think while we are conscious. So if you're conscious, you can't not be thinking. Um, and if you think you can, well, you're thinking you can, so you're thinking. The natural object of his thought, so what would God think about is the next question that Gwen asks or answers. Um, well, the answer is obvious. The natural object of his thought is his infinitely perfect self. And the representation of himself in his thought is so complete and perfect because he is himself complete and perfect. Anything he thinks, he will think to completion and with perfection. So the representation of himself in his thought is so complete and perfect that it represents its source in every possible respect to the extent, indeed, that it is completely equal to him. So God thinks about himself, and his thought is so um, perfect that his thought is equal in every respect to God himself, so much so that since God the Father is a person, his representation of himself in his thought must even be a person as well, and in fact is the second person of the Trinity. So God think the God's thought of himself is the second person of the Trinity, that is the Son of God, um, the thing that comes out of God that is as perfect and is perfectly equal to God, that is not only just like God to use the words to use the um, idea of simile, but actually is God, to use the um, phraseology of the Athanasian Creed. The Son is God. The Father is God. The Son, who is the perfect representation of God, so perfect as to be a person like God also. Your mirror image is not a person, but the perfect representation of perfection is itself as perfect as what it represents. So the Son exists as fully as God being his perfect representation. So, this is the second person of the Trinity. The person, 
God the Father, and remember what defines you as a person, is um, that you think and that you love, capable of reason and of loving. The person, God the Father, contemplates the thought that he is engendered, and the thought, also a person, contemplates the person who is his source. So God the Father and God the Son, that is the person God contemplates the thought of God. That thought has full existence because it's a perfect representation of God. Our thoughts don't have full, full existence. If I think of a V8, which I don't have, I could have had a V8, but I don't, it's not as good as having a V8. But if I were God and I thought of myself, I would be thinking of something that had the exact same ontological ex status, the exact same existence that I do. So, and because I am thinking of that person, that person would also be able to think of me. And that person would naturally think of me because that person would think of, like God, of perfection um, as the natural object of what it would think about. Um, so, the person, God the Father, contemplates the thought that he is engendered, and the thought, also a person, contemplates the person who is his source. What each of the two persons sees is in every respect so perfect, beautiful, admirable, and in every way lovable that each of the persons loves infinitely what he sees. And this infinite outpouring of mutual love, God the Father loving the Son, which is his thought, God the Son loving the Father, which is the source, which is his source. Um, the infinite, and this infinite outpouring of mutual love in which nothing is held back <clears throat> is such a complete and perfect reflection of its joint sources that it is equal to them in every way, even to the extent of being a person as well, specifically the third person of the Trinity. So the idea is there's God who thinks about himself and his thought is the second person. And because that thought is um, perfect as its source is, the thought and the, the, the thinker and the thought love each other. And that love, which um, represents their um, contemplation of each other, is now equal to them as being, just as the thought is equal to its source, the love between thought and source is as infinite and as full as the thought and the source itself, and that's the third person of the Trinity. <clears throat> Thus the theory, says Gwyn, although it is something not possible for us to imagine since our minds are not infinite, it is not self-contradictory. So, so, and then he has this great <laughs> last sentence, so one would jolly well hope given that it has satisfied countless people of outstanding intellect during the past 2,000 years. Um, so that's the defense of the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, he's not saying it's necessarily true, although he seems to, I, my bet would be that he's a believer. Um, but he's not saying, he's not arguing it's necessarily true, it's, he's arguing that it makes sense. So again, the Athanasian ring that, um, the Father is not the Son, is not the Holy Spirit. They're not, um, is not the Father, that they're three separate persons, but that each person is God, 
Um, that's an explication of that. And I thought it was... Um, what was that guy's name? This guy or... Yeah, the guy who wrote the... So, so this guy's name, I'd never heard of him before. Um, I guess one, one could Google him. Yeah. Um, if only there were a search engine that you could type <laughs> names in. Um, his name is Neville Martin Gwynn. I'll send this to you if you want. Um, and uh, he lives in England. Um, Neville Martin Gwynn. So anyone who wants, should I just put this on latte? Do other people yeah, want it? Yeah, sure. Okay. So I hope you found, I mean, I, I found that a really useful um, exposition, partly because it's not particularly theological as exposition. That is, you don't get lost in the wilds of, of um, technical language about divine existence. Um, and um, so that's partly what we've been talking about in talking about the Trinity. Yeah. I mean, so f fitting that notion into the, the traditional, like, relationship between the Father and Son and the Holy Ghost, it almost sounds as if the relationship between God, the idea of God, and the love of God and his idea would, would be almost breaking that a little in implying that the that God and the Holy Spirit are the parents of the Son, in a way. Mm -hmm. Well, in one way, but in another way, God and the Son are the parents of the Holy Spirit. Right? I guess then the question would be which, which takes the place of the idea of God and which the place of the love between God and the idea of God. So that's why I think it's important that the way he's putting it is to say God the Father... Not as in God who is the father of all things, which is um, a frequent way of understanding that phrase and kind of a natural way to understand the phrase, but that um, God, God, maybe a way to put this is to say that God the father doesn't, doesn't that doesn't give him priority being the father because you only are a father when you have a child. Um, so if you talk about God the Father, you're talking about a being whose existence is itself names the fact that simultaneous with his being a father, um, or what is reciprocal to his being a father, is that he has, in this case, a son. Um, so, so those are not... Um, simultaneous would even be the wrong word. And John, the, the Gospel of John makes it clear that it's the wrong word. Um, this is, again, something that 18th century philosophers, in particular Kant, but not only Kant, are very interested in. Um, there's, um, you can talk about every action having an equal and opposite reaction. That's what Newton said in the 17th century, um, that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And the idea is the re everyone knows that this isn't puzzling to you. If you saw gravity, you would know that. <laughs> um, that is that um, if you push off. Well, actually, it happens in gravity, right? Do people see it? Yeah. Yeah. So no, um, she has to fire. She has to fire, or doesn't he? Th I think at one point George Clooney throws something away from him. And the idea of throwing, or maybe shoot something. Isn't, doesn't she shoot a fire extinguisher? Yeah, she shoots, that's right, good. She shoots a fire extinguisher. Yeah, you're my go-to guy for popular culture. Um, <laughs> which laugh. is great. Happy to help. Um, yeah, she shoots a fire extinguisher, and the idea is that by shooting the fire extinguisher, it's pushing her in one direction, um, because for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Um, but that Newtonian idea 
is an idea of cause and effect. That is, I do something, and that causes an equal and opposite effect to the effect, um, to the action that I'm doing. So I shoot a fire extinguisher, or I throw a baseball, or they used to ask this in the time of Skylab, what do you do if you get caught right in the middle of Skylab and you can't touch anything, um, and you're just floating in air? How would you get to a place where you could grab onto something? Um, they used to ask this in high school physics classes. So do you know what you're supposed to do? You're naked, you're at Skylab, you're, you're stark naked, so there's nothing you can just take off and, or, or swing or do anything with, and you're floating in midair, equidistant from all four walls or all six walls and floor and ceiling of the room that you're in. What are you going to do? You're just floating there. How will you get to... It's not like a swimming pool where you can swim because there's no water to swim through. So what, what would you do? God, you guys, I thought you, I thought you, I thought, I thought there were prerequisites for this course. What's, <laughs> what's going on here? In case uh, this ever happens pray. to you. <laughs> burp? Yeah, burp will do it. Burp or blow or spit. Um, spitting is probably the best thing to do because when you, if you blow out, you'll also be inhaling in the next, um, but you should move your head around. But if you spit, then for the action of spitting, so your spit goes in one direction, you will start going in the other direction, much, much slower because you're much, much bigger than your own spit, but you will get motion from that because for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. So that idea is one in which one is cause and one is effect. And the idea of simultaneity often feels that way. That is that a person becomes a parent at the instant that their child becomes their offspring. Those things happen simultaneously, but clearly it's the action of the parent, the mother giving birth, that is the cause of both of these effects. So the parent is the cause of the effect of her becoming a parent and of the child becoming, or of the offspring becoming an offspring, the daughter becoming a daughter. Those but there's also the idea of reciprocality, which that isn't quite. The idea of reciprocality, um, Kant's example is you put a marble on a pillow, and the marble weighs the pillow down so that there's, it dimples the pillow. The pillow isn't as fluffed up as it would be without the marble on it, but the pillow is holding the marble up. So they are, simult they are, they are reciprocally um, affecting each other, the marble pushing on the pillow, the, pil the pillow pushing back on the marble, but we don't say that one is causing the other and the other is the effect. If you think of putting the marble on the pillow, sure, but if you just have a marble on a pillow, what you're seeing is a reciprocal relationship where what each is doing to the other, it's doing to the other at the same time and with the same priority. One is not prior to the other. One isn't the cause of the other, but they are reciprocal relations. So that's God the Father and God the Son. God the Father wasn't just around being God and then one day um, he said, oh, we're pregnant. Um, <laughs> um, but in the beginning was the word. That is, there was nothing, um, there was no time when God was not God the Father, because there was no time when God was not thinking, there was no time when God did not have a thought, 
Um, and therefore, the existence of God and the existence of thought, of his thought, are reciprocal. God is the pillow, his thought is the marble. Um, they are always there together. That's why John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And those ands are the ands of three ways of saying the exact same thing. It's not, and they're not and then, and then, and then, which is what and usually is in the Bible, in what's called the paratactic um, narration in the Bible, you know, and the Lord spoke unto Moses and said, speak unto the children of Israel and tell them that I, the Lord, am angry. And, and lo, Moses went and spoke unto the children of Israel and said, the Lord is angry. And those things happen in order. But John's ands are not ands that show you the order that things are happening in. Those are the ands of um, these are three ways of saying the same thing. In the beginning, Genesis says, God created heaven and earth. So the first words in Genesis are, in the beginning, God did certain things, and that makes God um, prior to all the things that he did. But in John, it's in the beginning was the word. That is, the son of God, the thought of God, the thing that comes from God was there in the beginning. So part of John's point there is to say that with God, just as in the beginning, Lee, as God existed, so too did the word exist. Genesis shows you how in the beginning, Lee, God existed. John shows you how just as in the beginning, Lee, the word existed. The word was with God, and the word was God. Um, so God is a thinking being. His thought is as um, complete as he is, as perfect as he is. His thought is therefore also a thinking being. The thought thinks about the thinker, and the thinker thinks about the thought. And um, it's not that the um, without the thinker there would be no thought, um, but you could have, um, um, you could have, you shouldn't think, you shouldn't imagine that you could have a thinker without a thought, at least in theory, um, because we sometimes don't think, we're sometimes asleep, so we can imagine potential thoughts rather than actual thoughts. Um, but you can't have a thought without a thinker. That's an earthbound view of things, that we think of thinkers as prior to thoughts because you can have thinkers without thoughts. You can space out, for example. Um, you can have thinkers without thoughts, but you can't have thoughts without thinkers. But for God, you can't. If you have a thinker, you have a thought, just as much as if you have a thought, you have a thinker. So God's thought is the sun, and um, the son's thought is the thinker. And therefore, in loving each other, they also, there's not only a thinker and a thought, but there's the relationship, which is one of absolute love between the thinker and thought, and that's the Holy Spirit. Um, so are we God's thought, too, that? Well, there are, that's, there are arguments that we are, but that's not part of the Athanasian Creed. Um, that, in particular, is what Bishop Barclay says, in his um, 
um, uh, principles of human knowledge, um, where he says to be <coughs> is to be perceived. Um, it's actually I'm teaching this in the film class right now. Um, so um, that's the view of the Trinity that is being defended here. Um, and um, if you agree that um, it's consistent, and I think that it is, I think that it's a reasonable, um, um, it's a defensible, it's a defendable position, then the idea of the Trinity is a defendable position. Um, doesn't mean it's true, um, but it is defendable. He would probably go further. What makes me think he's a believer is he would probably say, um, that not only is it defendable, but it has to be true that if there is a God, a monotheistic God, um, the way the monotheistic religions conceive of God, then the Trinity has to be true. Um, that is, I think his view is you can't think of um, a God without being immediately led to um, thinking about something that has to be a trinity because God has to be a thinking God and has to love his own thought and that thought has to be equal with God. So I think he would claim that. Um, not that, oh, the trinity might be true or it might be that the Old Testament God is true. Um, I think he would say that if the Old Testament God is true and if um, Allah is true, then the trinity is true. Um, and that may not be a defensible position. Um, but I think he thinks it's, it's a likely one. Um, but again, the idea that really the, the, the philosophical idea here to hang on to is the idea of um, the reciprocality between God and his thought. It's not that the thinker causes the thought and is therefore prior to it. It's that thinker and thought are coordinated with each other. You don't have one without the other. The way you don't have a north pole in a magnet without having a south pole in a magnet. There are no magnets with just one pole. Um, there can't be. Um, it's actually not completely positive that there can't be, but um, the, the general theory of magnetism is that you can't have a magnet with only one pole. Um, and um, the way Milton will describe this is in the invocation of light at the beginning of book three of Paradise Lost. Um, he says, hail holy light, offspring of heaven firstborn, um, bright effluence of bright essence increate. Wait, hail holy light, offspring of heaven firstborn, may I express the unblamed. Since God is light, and never but in unapproached light dwelt from eternity, dwelt then in thee, bright effluence of bright essence increate, or hearest thou or, or of um, hearest thou rather pure ethereal stream um, of the eternal co-eternal beam. Um, I reversed the lines there. So the idea of light as the effluence of God's essence makes it seem like, okay, so God is, is essence and light is coming out of him as its effluence. Um, but when he says bright 
effluence of bright essence, which is one definition he gives of light, bright effluence of bright essence, he's already saying brightness is part of what's the essence of God. It's not that God has some essence which then produces light the way the fusion of hydrogen into helium produces light in the sun. It's that God is in his very nature brightness. So the brightness is equivalent and equal to God or of the eternal co-eternal beam as eternal as a beam of light as the eternal himself is. Um, so that's Milton thinking along similar lines. Um, okay, so uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is going to matter in other poets that we read, and this seemed um, a useful excursus. Okay, done. <coughs> done. We're done with done. Um, John Son. Um, so um, what we've read for, what you've read for today, what we've read for today, um, all comes from, I think the book doesn't quite make this clear enough, although it makes it reasonably clear, um, but from the works of Ben Johnson, that's italicized on page 83 of the Norton, um, the phrase, the works of Ben Johnson, the title of the works of Ben Johnson is italicized, 1616. Um, that's a much bigger deal than it looks like, that title. Um, the books called the works of that were published at the beginning of the 17th century, the object of the preposition of would always be a classical writer. That is, you would have the works of Virgil, the works of Horace, the works of Ovid. And Johnson, who, um, for whom humility was not his long suit, um, did something that really struck people um, as, as unexampled arrogance even. When he published his own poetry with the title, The Works of Benjamin Johnson, no one had ever done anything like that before. No living person. You know, it's like um, the Library of America going to living people. Like there's Philip Roth and W.S. Merwin and people like that. That's, that's fairly recent that any living people got Library of America volumes. Uh, what Johnson did was like that, only more so. Um, a book like the works of Ben Johnson um, or the first folio of Shakespeare's, which came out seven years later. And without the works of Ben Johnson, there would have been no first folio. It's the fact that Johnson did that that made people think, um, OK, maybe we could publish um, complete authoritative works of modern writers. So Brandeis owns a first folio with a poem by Ben Johnson in it. There are about 120 of them in the world. Um, so you should go look at Brandeis's at some point. Um, where before we sell it. It's in the um, Farber Archives. Oh, I've totally looked at it. Never mind. <laughs> Where is it? In the library. You can take it out. No, you can't. <laughs> uh, um, but you can look at it. And um, it's also on the web. Um, it's one, there, there are four or five of them on the web, maybe more now. And they're all actually different for reasons having to do with um, the fact that they would um, print um, before they'd finished proofreading. So it was efficient, but it meant that um, mistakes got corrected after some volumes were printed. And you can actually order 
the um, when the first folios, which first folio was printed when, by how many errors have been corrected in it. Um, so the first first folios have the most errors. This is I'm actually simplifying, but more or less the idea is that the first ones have the most errors, and then you can see corrections later on. So each one is actually a unique. Um, it's a unique um, work. Um, and uh, so it matters. Each first folio actually matters because it's going to differ, even if only very slightly, from every other first folio. Um, so there are a few of them on the w that you can find on the web that have been digitized, and Brandeis is one of the major um, digitized first folios. Um, it's got a really sweet search engine um, and so on. At any rate, it wouldn't have existed except that um, Shakespeare's frenemy, 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 uh, ben Johnson um, had published his works um, the year Shakespeare died. And the idea of doing that, of publishing the works of a living writer and of boasting that your works are as important as the works of um, the great writers from antiquity, um, that's what Johnson was doing. So what, you, what you've read um, for today, um, both things, that is both the forest and the epigrams were published in the works. Um, and um, I hope you had a sense of how different, um, how much difference, how much variety there is in um, Johnson's poems. And um, a lot of them are modern English versions of things that the great Latin poets would do, um, like inviting a friend to supper, um, which is a, just a really beautiful invitation poem. And it's, a, it's an imitation of the kinds of poems that Marshall and Horace wrote um, 1,600 years earlier. Um, but then there's also the poem The Voyage, which is um, rather disgusting um, in a pleasant sort of way. Um, and then there's some of the, there's the epigram to Dunn, um, who Johnson really, really, really respected. Um, and there's um, the poem that he wrote to um, Lucy, um, giving her a copy of Dunn's poetry, that is a manuscript copy of Dunn's poetry, um, which he liked so much. So um, Johnson was everywhere at the time. He was involved in everything. He was just an insanely energetic person. Um, he was really pissed off that people thought Shakespeare was um, the greater writer, even in his day. Um, he, if you know the famous line about Shakespeare, that he had little, little Latin and less Greek, um, which is uh, the famous insult, that was Johnson's insult. Um, that Yeah, Shakespeare was fine given the fact that his Latin and Greek weren't very good. Um, and it really mattered to Johnson that Johnson really knew his classics. He knew Latin. He knew Greek. It mattered to him because it meant he wasn't executed when he killed someone in a duel. Um, he had a duel with someone. He killed the person. He would have been executed, except he pled what's called benefit of clergy, um, which is that you, if you could prove um, that you um, could read Latin, that made you the equivalent of someone who had immunity conferred by being a member of the clergy because laypersons couldn't read Latin. So he proved it, and they said, all right, no execution now. Um, and then he went on to continue writing poetry. He was um, a moralist, um, a very strong moralist, and you can see this in his um, plays and his masks. 
Um, but he wasn't a stuck-up moralist. That is, um, he really thought that um, being a cheater, being dishonest, being a trickster, that those were bad things. Um, but he also knew they were incredibly entertaining things. And um, so he would, um, he really did believe they were bad. It's a mistake in reading Johnson to try to read him ironically, to try to say, no, he's really on Volpone's side, for example, because he wasn't. Um, but he found Volpone, he found that he could make Volpone incredibly entertaining, and that is something um, that he wanted to do. And, um, you know, he was obviously socially incredibly adept. Um, and part of that was frankness on his part and candidness on his part. He wasn't, um, um, at least it doesn't look like he was a suck-up. He must have been a suck-up in some ways because he was pretty much um, uh, so important to um, James I and James's, um, and, and as a writer of panegyrics and praise to James's court. Um, James was an okay king. Um, unlike his son. Um, and so it may be that Johnson really did admire James. But if you're in court, you're inevitably a suck-up. I mean, it just that's, that's the way it is. If all you have to do is be watching season two of House of Cards. Um, and you'll know what James's court was like. Except James is much more intelligent than President What's-His-Name in House of Cards. Um, what's, what's his name? Walker. Walker, yes. Um, Serving my pop culture. Yes. <laughs> Would you have known? No. Um, Did you watch season one? I've not watched House of Cards. Forget it. You're you, you're <laughs> dethroned. Um, House of Cards is really good. It's Kevin Spacey, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't like Kevin Spacey? No, I adore Kevin Spacey. Okay, you should watch House of Cards. Yeah, he was good in the Oscars. He he played he played um, Francis Underwood for a minute in the Oscars the other night. So it's so good to be out of Washington. <laughs> um... He also photobombed someone on the Boston Commons. Did you guys see that? No. Yeah, there's <laughs> these tourists. One husband was taking a picture of his wife in front of the statue, right? In, actually, in the public garden, the statue right at the bottom of Com, of Com Ave, and Kevin Spacey was jogging. So <laughs> he just photobombed them. <laughs> there they had a picture of the wife and Kevin Spacey <laughs> holding her shoulders and grinning at the camera. So, um, I thought that was pretty cool. That was um, and he's very verbal, much like Ben Johnson. Not bad, huh? Excellent. <laughs> um, you get the verbal. Why I said he's very verbal. Verbal? No? Popular culture people? Usual suspects? Oh. It's still. Okay. <laughs> he is known as verbal. That's the character name. He's actually not really verbal, but someone else, it turns out, at the end. But you will get no spoiler here. Um, You don't know about the usual suspects? Oh, no, I know. I remember. Yeah. Isn't that the line at the end of Casablanca? Yes. It is the line at the end of Casablanca. Good. Old popular culture. Nice. (laughs) Um, Limited uses. The son of the, um, the son and nephew of the two writers of Casablanca, Tota Brandeis, when I first got here. He teaches at BU now. Yeah, Leslie Epstein. Um, the Usual Suspects, yeah, it's a, it's a line from the end of Casablanca, but it's a really good movie. Yeah. Seen You've seen it? Yeah, I was, a bill, I was trying to be a Bill Maid Rock, I'm a failure. <laughs> <laughs> What's the Casablanca line? 
uh, round up the usual suspects. Yeah. But she says when he's not going to arrest Humphrey Bogart for murdering the... General Strasser. Yes. So this General Strasser has been shot. And Humphrey Bogart is just standing there waiting to be arrested. And then Claude Rains says, round up the usual suspects. <laughs> but he says that at the beginning of the movie also, that that's what prepares it um, when the letters of transport are stolen. So, um, and transport transports us back to the time of Ben Johnson. <sighs> sometimes, sometimes your shifts are very feeble. One's shifts are very feeble. Um, so there's a huge amount of variety in these poems. And um, um, that's one thing to really admire in Johnson is um, the different ways, the different styles, the different tones that he writes in. Part of this is that he also, um, and some of what we'll be reading are songs from the plays. Um, that is, he writes these masks, he writes these entertainments, he writes these court entertainments for the court of James I, which are called masks. Um, and in masks, what masks are, are plays where um, a large part of it is the um, idea of getting, they're, they're in, nah, I don't really want to say this. Um, they are, um, ways of showing the talents of the people in the masks. So they're not, um, like, Shakespe like Shakespearean plays, they're not full-blown stories where you write the best possible play you can in order to tell the story that you want to tell, which is the story of King Lear and his daughters, or of Hamlet and his uncle, or whatever. Um, but rather, they are entertainments where there's going to be a plot, but the plot is also going to be the excuse for um, some spectacular dancing, some spectacular singing, some spectacular sets. Um, masks were incredibly expensive to put on. They were rich people's entertainments, um, especially for the, for the court and for the king. Um, they had all sorts of amazing um, special effects. And um, they were astonishing. And among the things they had were just really beautiful songs within them. Um, and so a lot of Johnson's great, um, set to beautiful music. Um, Purcell, the English composer, um, for example, composed for masks. Um, and um, so Johnson wrote some incredibly beautiful songs for his masks um, that, that um, also just just stand out as, um, count as um, poems on their own. Um, and he wrote in all sorts of different ways. But I thought what we could do just to start with is look at um, two of his really most beautiful and saddest poems, um, and then maybe to inviting a friend to supper, which um, shows Johnson in his urbane style. But the thing about Johnson is, unlike Dunn, um, who really pretty much wrote in that one difficult style and sometimes made it more, sometimes less difficult, sometimes made it about um, religious things, sometimes made it about um, sexual things, sometimes both, um, Johnson writes in many, many different styles, and he has really great control of his style. The problem with that being a little bit like the problem with Dunn that you may not always feel comfortable knowing whether Johnson um, is performing or whether he is 
producing a kind of more modern sense of poetry as expression. That is what we tend to value, especially lyric poetry, is poetry as um, expressive of the soul of the poet. You know, if you read any poem in The New Yorker, that's what it's going to be about. It's going to be about, you know, the polar vortex is coming in <laughs> and the sadness of life can be seen in the icicles falling from every tree and um, the coldness of the air is like the oncoming coldness of death and I am a deep person. Um, you know, so that's basically what New Yorker poems are like um, and or used to be like. They're not that bad anymore. Um, but the idea is that they're expressive of um, the poet's soul and that's a really um, a basic sense that we have of what lyric poetry is like. Um, obviously, Dunn is not like that that much. Um, you, and we talked a lot about Dunn doing different voices. Um, Johnson will sometimes make you feel that he's doing that, and then you're, but you won't be sure if you read a lot of Johnson whether he is feeling that way or not. When we get to Herbert, we're going to get to someone where you really do feel um, like you're getting self-expression on Herbert's part. Um, but it's not so clear in Johnson. But let's look at, um, this is page 85 of um, the Norton, of the two um, not only epigrams but epitaphs um, or epitaphical poetry on my first daughter and on my first son. Um, so... Um, Someone want to read on my first daughter? Yeah, Justy. Here lies to each her parents' Ruth, Mary, the daughter of their youth. Yet all heaven's gifts being heaven's due, it makes the father less to rue. At six months' end she parted hence with safety of her innocence, whose soul heaven's queen, whose name she bears, in comfort of her mother's tears, hath placed among her virgin train where, while that severed doth remain, this grave partakes the fleshly birth, which cover lightly gentle earth. Thank you. Um, so what do we know about Mary? She's dead. She's dead? How old? Six months. Yeah, so she died in infancy at six months old. Um, that's basically all we know about her, um, except that she was um, probably his first child, the daughter of um, her, of um, their youth, of her parents' youth, um, which suggests, I think, that the poem was written later. That is, that the mourning is has lasted. That is, here lies to each her parents' Ruth. Ruth there means um, sorrow, pity, um, some combination of pity and sorrow. Here lies to each her parents' Ruth. Mary, the daughter of their youth. Um, so he's one of the parents, but he's talking about himself in the third person. Why? Why not marry the daughter of my youth or of our youth? So someone else can use it. <laughs> so someone else can use it. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> they can still use it. Hilarious jokes about the parents of dead six months old. Good. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. If we won't laugh at death, who will? Well, it almost <laughs> makes their their youth her doing in a grammatical way. The, not the daughter of them, but the daughter of their youth, meaning 
sort of almost with her passing, so passes their youth. Yeah. Um, but again, why not our youth? Is he not with her anymore? With his wife. No, he is. I mean, we don't know for sure, but presumably he is. And maybe it's just too painful to make personal, make things well, my... here, just very, very, very basic question. Here lies where? I don't see. There. There where? In a graveyard. There you. Yeah, so where would this, if you, the phrase here lies, where do you find that? On a grave. On a gravestone. Yeah. So you don't find it in a book, except or unless it's a copy of a gravestone. Now, presumably this isn't. That is, that what you're getting here is like what you will, is vaguely equivalent to what you would get in a dramatic monologue. You know, if you think of Browning's um, 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 My Last Duchess, um, where the speaker of that poem is showing a picture of um, his dead wife to an ambassador from another court. And um, it's not a poem that is, whose speaker imagines a reader, unlike most lyrics whose speakers do imagine a reader. That is, most people, when they write poetry now, um, are imagining or hoping, or the ideal would be, and this poetry, this, my poem, this my poem will be published in the New Yorker, um, and will be published in a book. And so the idea is that the speaker of a poem is someone expressing him or herself um, in something that will be read in some publication, maybe on the web or whatever, but it'll be read in some publication. Um, so the general um, form of a modern poem is not here lies. The general form of a modern poem, again, is something like it's been a cold winter and the polar vortex is driving me crazy. Um, that is something that um, whose speaker is imagining a reader in a book. And that's so obvious that it's even hard to um, see that that's what the expectation is, that that's an actual expectation, that that isn't... Um, um, simply what it means to write a poem. But if you think of writing a poem for a gravestone, then the here really matters. Here lies. Where this gravestone is, underneath it lies. So if you see that, then why, is the, um, why are the parents described in the third person? Excuse me? Because it's supposed to go on the gravestone? Yeah. It's supposed to be able to reference the parents even after they're gone? Yeah, because you never see a gravestone that says, actually you do sometimes, and they're very <laughs> moving, partly because of naivete, but gravestones in general, you don't expect them to say, here lies my daughter. Um, you would say, you know, here lies, here lies the daughter of Josiah Smith, and Josiah Smith might have paid for the gravestone and might have even carved um, the letters into the gravestone in his lapidary style. Um, but nevertheless, gravestones don't, aren't imitating the voice of a speaker. They are public announcements of, what, of where you are, of what's there. So they are public and impersonal um, declarations. 
it's not like, you know, imagine um, 30 days have September, April, June, and November. All the rest have 31 except for February alone, which really drives me crazy. <laughs> um, that's not the kind of poem it is. It's the kind of poem which is giving you public information. Um, you know, it's not, it's not also, you know, um, park, this way to Park Street, which is not my favorite state. <laughs> um, you know, public information is public information. So that's what a gravestone is. It's public information. And so it's giving you information about um, Mary and the fact that um, she is the daughter of her parents' youth. Now, but it's somewhat more personalized than that because her parents are still alive. That is, here lies to each her parents' Ruth. Her parents are sad. Um, not here, here was set to her parents' Ruth, Mary, the daughter of their youth, but her, their Ruth is still living Ruth in that first line. Here lies to each her parents' Ruth. She lies here, and her parents are sad. Those are equivalent present tenses. The reason you can have a present tense on a gravestone is that death is forever. So if you say, here lies Emily Dickinson, um, then it means, yeah, and she will lie here forever. Um, but if you say, here lies Emily Dickinson to her um, cousin's sorrow um, as they go about their business, well, that may have been true when the gravestone was put up, but it's no longer still true. And the voice of a gravestone is supposed to be one that is always true. So there again, you start feeling like, okay, it's imitating what you would put on a gravestone. But even the first line is telling you it's not quite what you would put on a gravestone because it's not eternal. Her parents won't eternally feel that sorrow because they won't live forever. So here lies to each her parents' Ruth, Mary, the daughter of their youth. And so now we get, I think, to what you were saying, Justine, which is that um, they are being put on the gravestone, but they know it. That is, their youth is gone, their daughter is gone. They are now becoming figures who are starting to be carved into gravestones as being eternally what they are rather than living people anymore. And what was living in them went or started going when their daughter went. And then he tries to help himself. Yet, all heaven's gifts being heaven's due, it makes the father less to Rue. Ruth, by the way, is the noun for Rue. That's, that's uh, how to understand what Ruth is. If you, rue, if you feel, if you are ruing something, you are feeling Ruth. So if you are rueful, you are feeling Ruth. That's the, that's the word Ruth in line one. So yet all heaven's gifts being heaven's due, and I like the way um, you emphasize father in that line. It makes the father less to rue. So what does that line mean, all heaven's gifts? Probably all hen's gifts being hen's due, being hen's due, hen's due. Everything that God gives you Yeah, and it belongs to God. So what does it say about Mary? What is she? She's God, or she's with God. Yeah, she, she is a gift of heaven, and therefore she belongs to heaven, so she is with 
heaven um, as her proper home. And so it makes the father less to rue. It makes him a little less sad to contemplate the idea that she's in heaven. But why the father? Why not the parents? Maybe she's not, she doesn't believe. Or it doesn't help. So, um, which makes huge psychological sense. That is that I think one of the things that's amazing about this poem is that it's a third-person poem in which we get Johnson's attitude towards his daughter's death, his sorrow, his hope, but also his tenderness and um, sensitivity to his wife's attitude towards her death. So he's saying, I'm confident she's in heaven, and that helps me a little bit. But he's also saying it helps me a little bit. It doesn't help us both. This is not a poem, You, in a way you could say this is not a poem that his wife would have disagreed with. She would have said, yeah, makes you rue less. So what? At six months' end, she parted hence with safety of her innocence. What does that mean? Virgin. Yeah, she's a virgin and pure. Um, So where virginity um, or the loss of virginity isn't itself the most important thing, except as a symbol for whether you're innocent or whether you have become um, a knowing person, knowing wise in the ways of the world and therefore no longer innocent. So, but no, she died at six months, so she um, died as an innocent person person, whose soul, heaven's queen, whose name she bears in comfort of her mother's tears, hath placed amongst her virgin train. So what happened to, the, to Mary's soul? Um, who's heaven's queen? It joined Mary, because they're both virgins, and so now she hopped on the virgin train. Well, okay, yes. <laughs> Um, not quite that kind of train. Um, <laughs> yes, the virgin Mary train. Mary the virgin mother is taking care of right. her daughter's soul, which right. is what the mother had prayed for. Right. So, um, so the daughter bears the name of Mary, the queen of heaven, and the queen of heaven has placed her soul among her virgin train, that is um, one of the people who follows her as, as her retinue, um, train and retinue, I think train, um, they're basically the same word and I think they have the same root, in fact. Um, and um, what about in comfort of her mother's tears? Well, maybe if being in heaven is what is comforting him, the fact that she is with Mary amongst her virgin trainers would comfort her. Or, or... Them, because Mary's son died, too. Yeah. So. Yeah. But here, her mother has to be Mary's mother, yeah. um, which is to say the, the um, Mary Johnson's mother, um, not um, Mary, the Queen of Heaven's mother. Um, of whom Ruth, by the way, I'm sure Johnson is thinking of this, is one of the ancestors. Um, that is Ruth in the book of Ruth is an ancestor of the Virgin Mary it's the first thing we hear practically the first thing we hear in the first gospel is the descent um, from Ruth through Mary Um, 
So, um, but what we're what we learn from this is that yeah, he rues a little bit less, but she is still full of tears, in comfort of her mother's tears, and it's almost as though at this point we can guess, we can figure out that this poem is offered to her. Um, you're still weeping, and you know how can she know? that her daughter is in the virgin's train, she can't. But um, the idea that this is the public truth that's being put on her gravestone, the idea that that's the form of the poem, is offered as a kind of comfort to the weeping mother. So she's placed among her virgin train where, while that severed doth remain, that is, while the soul is still severed from the body, because the body will only... What will happen um, when the angels blow their trumpets at the round earth's imagined corners? What happens? They all come back alive, right? Yeah, but what will arise? Yeah, right. Um, The souls will rise and to their scattered bodies go. So at the last judgment, Mary's soul and body will join, but right now they are severed. Where in heaven? While that severed doth remain, this grave partakes the fleshly birth, that is, this grave contains the body, not the soul, but the body of Mary, the fleshly birth, which cover lightly gentle earth. So it's um, the idea is let the earth cover the dead person lightly. It's a beautiful, not a not an original sentiment on Johnson's part. It's a, Ophelia says something similar in Hamlet, but a beautiful sentiment. Um, there's a great poem. We can just end with this because Dickinson was so affected by 17th century poetry in general. Um, I don't think she ever talks about Johnson, but she has a great poem um, about a neighbor who's just died. It's a one-line poem. Snow beneath whose chilly softness some that never lay make their first repose this winter I admonish thee blanket wealthier the neighbor we so new bestow than thine acclimated creature wilt thou austere snow so a neighbor has just died his first winter underground and um those who make their first repose this winter under snow, she calls upon snow to blanket wealthier the neighbor we so new bestow than thy acclimated creature wilt thou, austere snow. Um, I think the amazing thing about the Johnson poem is it's only in the very last line that you find out who the addressee of the poem, the official addressee of the poem is, which is earth. That is, it's a poem in the vocative mode. It's addressed and names the person that it's addressed to. The vocative is when you name the person you're talking to. If you, if you say, um, Cyrus of, of Sirius Father, Sirius Son, or whatever, um, you're addressing that person. Oh, wild west wind, you're addressing the wind. Here it turns out he's addressing the earth that's covering his daughter's body. Um, And I think it's a beautiful poem. Okay, we'll pick up there, but read another 18 pages for Friday.
Yeah, I'm going to think about that till Friday. Okay. <laughs> it's not till till Friday after this right. Friday. Right. Right. Oh, okay. You have time. You have nothing but time. Oh, this Friday? Yeah.